A quick warning, there are curse words that are unbeeped in today's episode of the show. If you prefer a beeped version, you can find that at our website, thisamericanlife.org. Cassidy's 10, fifth grade. At the end of the school year, he's one of the talented extroverts singing in front of everybody, parents and kids, with his band. Okay, but here's something that's hard for him. Reading. It'll be okay for stretches, you know, when he already knows the words. One day the sun shone so it was not cold, so cold. But he has dyslexia. So reading an unfamiliar word, he has to decode it. If it's a big word that I've never seen before, like that word, I don't know what that says. Okay, let's let's walk through that one. Wait, d, e, d, wait, d, e, v, a. Here, talk me through what you're doing. So you're getting the d. D. I had to. I I had to. Um, if you didn't like in the recording, you might hear me say bed. Thinking of the word um, bed as a way to keep B's sure and D's straight. This is actually one of the toughest things for Cassidy to learn. B's and D's, when they're not capitalized. B's and D's, they look the exact same, but just flipped. If you take a B, it can also be a D. And it was just super annoying for a long while. So it's easy to get them confused. Yeah. So there's this trick that lots of people with dyslexia are taught. They picture the word bed, which, if you think about it, kind of looks like a bed. Like the posts of the B and the D are like the footboard and the headboard of the bed, and then the E is kind of the mattress. I, I picture the letters, and I go B for B, eh, and then D, and then boom. There are so many little rules and tricks like this that some kids with dyslexia use. They have all kinds of names. The fizzle rule, the floss rule, short vowel protectors, welded sounds. These um, are the rules of the English language that most of us somehow absorb, but we are not aware of. The mechanics of uh, when to use a long vowel or a short vowel, when G or GH are silent. They learn dozens of these and then wield them like tools, one after another, to decode how a word should sound. And then, eh, e, v. Anyway, back to decoding this word. Eh, de, v. Which, by the way, the word he's trying to read is devastating. Devast. What is V-A-S-T? How would that sound? Wait, oh, vast. Devast. Mm-hmm. Then A-T. Then at in. Devastine. Hmm? I think I'm doing something wrong. He's just breaking the word down syllable by syllable like his teacher taught him. Explains uh, one part of the word is a CVC, consonant, vowel, consonant. He looks for parts of the word that he recognizes. Um, I know ing from class and devastine. You're leaving out the um, middle one, though. Devastine. Devast. I really don't know. You're very close. You want me to give you a hint? Sure. Okay, this one is a long, long A, so it's A-ting. Devastate-ing. Devastating. 
Do you know that word, devastating? Devastating. I do know that word. That is so much work. It is. It really is. Later I asked his teacher what rule might have gotten in there, and she said, magic E. If you had recognized that the ing in devastating might have been replacing an E on the end of the word, that final E would have told him how to pronounce the tate in devastate. So many rules to remember. And irritatingly, so many exceptions to the rules you have to memorize. For example, salmon. It would be pronounced salmon, but it's salmon. Like, why? There's so many words that are like, deal with it. And so Cassidy's in the situation where things that seem to come so easily to other kids, he has to work so much harder at. Kids like him can become as fluent in reading as anybody else, but it's like, to go the mile that other kids go, they go 10 miles and need every navigation tool and touch every blade of grass along the way before they get there. Other kids really don't understand this. Yeah, they're like, why can't you read that? And I'm like, I have dyslexia. I mean, it doesn't feel terrible. It's not like, ah, making me want to scream. But it's like, it's a little like, I mean, I'm so used to it now that it's like, okay. You know what's so strange is like, like you have to master stuff that's so much more difficult than those kids. Definitely, definitely. I have to do, like, a lot more just to get a simple word that everybody knows how to spell, except for me. It's just like, okay, well, have fun being able to spell supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. And I'm over here like, how do you spell there again? Well, today on our program, we have people like Cassidy who have to take the long road to get to a place that other people get to more quickly. It takes them more time. It's more effort. But the thing about doing it that way, you don't take anything for granted. You see so much more than other people do. From WBEZ Chicago, this is American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Stay with us. One, voter, reformed. So Mississippi is one of a small number of states where something like a robbery conviction can cost you your right to vote. Even after you get out of prison, even after you complete your parole, pay all your fines, all that, you still can't vote. Mississippi is unusual in that regard. Most states do not permanently take away a person's right to vote. And if they do, it's usually just for crimes like rape or murder. But in Mississippi... There is one way, one long, winding path that people can take that will let them vote again. This is a path that most states do not offer. Johnny Kaufman explains. When I first learned about this, I was a little baffled. To get your voting rights back, you have to get your own personal bill passed by the state legislature. These bills, they're called suffrage bills, are just one page with your name, your conviction, and a line about being a, quote, honorable citizen kind of your own personal law, giving you permission to vote. The bills have to go through committees and pass the House and Senate, all that stuff. And we'll get to that. 
But the thing to know in general about this is it's pretty hard to pass any bill, ever, about anything. So this is pretty hard. And the people that try, they tend to really care about voting. Like this man, Gerald Laird. One of the main reasons he really wants to be able to vote again, the thing that drives him kind of crazy. They consolidated the schools. Local school board. He talked for almost 10 minutes about it, how they closed the high school. And they move the high school to Bassfield. Prentice had the better facilities. And the school board members, he says, okay, they have credentials, but no real experience with education. I mean, come on, my degree is in psychology, but that doesn't mean I would make a great teacher. Gerald lives an hour south of Jackson, Mississippi's capital, where he helps run the family business, a funeral home. Gerald told me he's an introvert, but he also said he's the person at church who will stand up and tell the deacon to get closer to the microphone. Gerald's the guy who sits in the back and records the service. He's pretty open about, well, pretty much everything, including how he lost his right to vote. He robbed a bank back in 2002. He told me he was grappling with drug addiction, relapsed, and bought cocaine from a guy. It was that guy's idea. He wrote the note, and he said, go give this to the teller. And she gave me the money and tell you how dumb I was. Instead of running out, I casually walked out. He wasn't wearing a mask. He didn't even know what was on the note. I'm assuming it said, give me the money. That's what I'm assuming. They got caught the same day. At first, he was charged with armed robbery. But then the prosecutor looked at the security footage and realized he didn't have a weapon. And they were like, oh, okay, you're guilty of a lot of things. And being dumb is the most prevalent one. That's what my lawyer told me. These days, Gerald watches after his mom and his uncle, who owns the funeral home. He's been out of jail for 16 years. He doesn't see any reason why he shouldn't be able to vote. Gerald started on this long, strange journey to get back his right to vote, one day in church. A friend told him about the suffrage bills. So he decided to try. He filled out a form. A nonprofit in Jackson passed it on to a state representative who introduced his bill. Gerald hadn't actually seen it when we met, but I had a copy with me. It was wild for him to see it. House Bill 1721, an act to restore the right of suffrage to Gerald Laird of Jefferson Davis County, Mississippi. Be it enacted by the legislature of the state of Mississippi, Section 1, the right of suffrage is hereby fully and completely restored to Gerald Laird, Jefferson Davis County, Mississippi, who was- To be clear, this bill hadn't passed. But just to see what could happen, there on the page. The right is hereby fully and completely restored. (laughs) This makes me happy. This makes me really, really happy. Wow. Just imagine. (laughs) Fully and completely. What do you think about this line at the end? The um, legislature is informed that he has since conducted himself. As a law-abiding and honorable citizen in a good and lawful manner. I agree. I have. Except for speeding. I have a problem with speeding. But uh, I'm getting better. Um, mm, This would be just so amazing. And all it has to do is pass. 
Can I have a copy of this? You can keep that. Okay. Wow. This year, Gerald was one of 23 people who got bills introduced, hoping to get their right to vote back. I tried to talk to as many as I could. It was a pretty determined group. A dad and tool factory worker who had been on a union board, an older man who was sick in bed, he used to be a county supervisor, and a guy who worked at a mental hospital. He showed me a news clipping about how his father was shot and nearly killed trying to register people to vote. There are something like 44,000 people in Mississippi who can't vote because of a conviction. A disproportionate percentage, 60%, are black, in a state that's 38% black. Gerald is black. So is Nashombi Lambright Haynes. She's the person who took the form Gerald filled out and gave it to a legislator who introduced the bill. She helps a lot of people do this. When I first learned about the process, I understood that people didn't take advantage of it. And I felt like, hey, this is a way for us to really get in there. And I was excited about it until I learned that, you know, it was a joke. A joke because a bill can die with no explanation. There's nothing on any government website telling you how to get your vote back, even finding out when the bills are discussed. How do you find out when the when the committees are happening? Um, I would just like um, text some of the committee members to see, you know, have you heard anything about the suffrage committee? Oh, yeah. Um, the chairman said we're probably going to meet next Wednesday. But it's never on the calendar. <laughs> so then that next Wednesday will come. Are you guys going to meet today? Yeah, we're going to meet at four today. So it's just like stalking people, basically. Fortunately, when Nashombi stalks people, they like her. She's fun to talk to. They answer her texts. Nashombi was head of the Mississippi ACLU for nearly a decade. Now she leads a nonprofit called One Voice. The office is in an old Masonic building that the civil rights activist Medgar Evers used to work out of. Nashombi seems busy all the time. A friend gave her this mug once that says, fuck it, I'll do it. And this is one of those things. She's got lots of other stuff, but she makes time for these bills. Been doing it for over a decade. The lifetime voting ban is enshrined in the Mississippi Constitution, and the history of how it ended up there is pretty well documented and revealing. It starts after the Civil War. Black people could finally vote, and they were putting people in office, including the first black U.S. Senator, Hiram Rhodes Revels. But there was backlash. In 1890, white leaders like Senator James George said the state needed to hold a convention to write a new constitution. George said the new census was going to show there were more black people than whites in Mississippi. And the goal of the convention should be to make sure whites controlled the government. The president of the convention was a man named Solomon Calhoun, who said, quote, Negro suffrage is an evil and an evil to both races. In his opening speech at the convention, he said the voting scheme should be arranged to keep white people in power. They decided on a few things. There was a poll tax and this really vague test called the Understanding Clause that said a voter had to be able to interpret part of the Constitution. One newspaper called it a gigantic fraud. Then there was the part in the new Constitution about crime and voting. The um, Constitution says that there are 11 crimes that take your voting rights away. And those are bigamy, um, timber, larceny. Timber larceny? 
like stealing wood or something, stealing trees. <laughs> I talked to two historians who said the list was clearly meant to target Black people, crimes delegates at the convention thought Black people would be more likely to commit. And the novel idea that you could get your rights back if you get a bill through the legislature with your name on it, that was also in the 1890 Constitution. Historians don't know much about how it ended up in there. Maybe they were trying to keep the governor from gaining too much power. Or maybe they wanted a way to help their white friends and family if they happened to commit one of the crimes on the list. Whatever it was, this last chance is still there. For anyone who wants to try. But most people don't even know about it. Gerald's journey began where all epic journeys begin. The subcommittee of the House Judiciary B Committee. Gerald wanted to be there when they discussed his bill, which it turns out is difficult to do because you don't know when the heck they're meeting. Even the legislators don't know sometimes. I managed to get the phone number of the lawmaker who chairs the committee, but it wasn't until the day before that he let me know when it was going to happen. Gerald wasn't going to be able to make it. He couldn't find anyone to cover for him at the funeral home. I visited him the night before. We sat in his living room. It's kind of emotional for me because this is something that I would really, really, really like to see happen and left up to a bunch of people that don't know me from a can of paint. I don't know what my chances are. If I were able to be there, I'd say I would at least have a 75% chance if I could meet them and talk with them. Are you nervous about how it's going to go tomorrow? Yes, extremely. I had a joke, but it's not appropriate. But yeah, very. You can tell me the joke. As nervous as a $2 whore on first Sunday. It seemed like Gerald's bill stood a chance of passing. Sometimes a bill fails because the person has an unpaid fine they don't know about, or because they only recently finished their sentence. Those weren't problems for Gerald. I told him I'd let him know how it went. I went to the hearing the next day. Six state representatives, all but one of them white, sat around a couple folding tables in a big committee room that was mostly empty. Off to the side, a red plastic coffee dispenser with styrofoam cups. The legislators had background checks in front of them for everyone with a suffrage bill. Only like three other people were in the room. I set a microphone on the table. Sam, you ready? Yeah. <clears throat> All right, we're going to start the meeting. This is Representative Noah Sanford. They went through suffrage bills. The first bill passed. So did the next one. There wasn't really any discussion. Then Gerald's came up. All right. 1721. This is Gerald Laird of Jefferson Davis County. Sanford read through the bill. So we're 13 years past at this point. Y'all have any questions? All right. Motion is title sufficient to pass. All in favor? Aye. Opposed? Okay. 1721 passes. House Bill 1721, Gerald's bill, made it out of the committee. The next day, it went to the full House for a vote. All right, that brings us to page 30, suffrage bills. For a suffrage bill to pass, it takes more than a normal bill, like to adjust income tax rates or give teachers a raise. You need more than a majority. 
two-thirds of the House would have to vote for it. And then, if it passed here, two-thirds of the Senate. House Bill 1721 concerns Gerald Laird of Jefferson Davis County, convicted of robbery in 2003, was released uh, and finished all the conditions of his sentence May 2009. That's the description of the bill. Questions? I don't see any. Open the machine, Madam Clerk. Question occurs in House Bill 1721. You favor the bill, vote aye. If you're opposed, vote nay. Is everyone voted? Opposed machine, Madam Clerk. I vote 106 yeas, zero nays. Bill passes. Next item. 106 representatives voted for Gerald's bill. Nobody voted against it. It was through the House. It just had the Senate to go. Hey, did you hear that your bill uh, passed the full house? Oh, wow. That's wonderful. (laughs) Okay, that's great. Wow. (laughs) Man. (laughs) Now, on through the Senate. I can't wait. They need to have some elections this summer so I can vote. (laughs) Wow. I wish you could see this big cheese-eating grin on my face right now. Next step, the Senate. It started the following week. Just like on the House side, Gerald's bill had to be passed by a committee before it could go to the full Senate. He had been trying on his own to reach the chair of the committee, Senator Joey Fillengain. He thought it might help his case. I tracked down his number today the actual number that actually rings to his office. However, no one ever answers it because I think it rang somewhere in the neighborhood of of 50 times and then it hung up on me. You let it ring for 50 times? You stayed on that long? I did, yes. I wanted to tell him my name and that I would appreciate any consideration that he would give my suffrage bill so that I could get my voting rights back. The Senate committee met a few days later. Again, we only learned about it the night before. And like last time, Gerald couldn't go because of work. He had to watch it on YouTube from the funeral home. This committee room was slightly bigger, fancier than the first one. It was the end of the session, and only six of the committee's 15 members showed up. All of the ones who did were white. Here's Senator Fillengain. So our friends from the House who are here this morning, um, we have three suffrage bills that are before us, and the um, colleagues from down the hall were kind enough to come down and visit with us. They were going to be considering just three suffrage bills. The first bill came up. It wasn't Gerald's. The sponsor from the House talked about it, and the committee passed it. Then another representative came to the microphone. She was there to talk about two other bills. Uh, Good morning, committee, and thank you, Mr. Chairman, for allowing me to present on behalf of Ms. Ledbetter and Ms. Grant. Neither bill was Gerald's. His did not even come up. It was dead. I looked into it, and this is how it goes a lot of the time. The House will pass a suffrage bill, but then Fillingang blocks it. So I put in a request to talk to him. 
Gerald called me the day after his bill died. I did not call you yesterday because I was somewhat depressed and kind of a little bit, you know, just like, oh, well, you know, I guess this wasn't meant to be right now. What do you mean by that? Just saying, oh, well. I mean, that's kind of my way of protecting my feelings by just saying, you know, it's not in God's time. Gerald had no idea why Phil and Gain killed his bill, why these other people made it and not him. Phil and Gain got back to me and was happy to talk. I met him at his law office. He's a real estate lawyer when he's not at the Capitol. I just finished my 23rd year in the legislature and combined House and Senate, and next year will be the end of the sixth term. So, I mean, I've been doing it for a little while now. I brought a copy of Gerald's bill with me. His did pass out of the House. Mm -hmm. um, And then I don't think the Senate committee even brought it up for discussion. Right. I don't recall us bringing that one up. And probably because his disenfranchising crime was that of robbery, which is considered a violent offense. Robbery is classified as a violent offense in Mississippi law. It doesn't mean the crime itself was necessarily violent. But Phil and Gain, as a general rule, doesn't consider any suffrage bills for violent crimes. He says that's what the lieutenant governor, who put him on the committee, told him to do. That's why Gerald's bill died. But ultimately, it is up to Phil and Gain. He can do what he wants. And he said he does sometimes weigh information that sways him one way or another. But there's no part of this process set aside for people to come talk to him in the committee, introduce themselves, tell their story. I told him that Gerald's crime was almost 20 years ago, and that he didn't have a gun at the bank. Fillingen said, yes, those are the kinds of things that could persuade him in the committee. But he said he'd look at other things too. Fillingen said it might hurt someone like Gerald if the police had been called to their home, or if they'd been convicted of another crime. I wondered how Fillingen felt about enforcing this particular part of Mississippi's constitution, given how it disproportionately affects black people, and given its history. The historians that I've talked to about this to try to, you know, learn more about it, said that, you know, it was this 1890 constitutional convention that met and that, you know, the goal of that convention was to keep black people from voting and that the, you know, these criminal disenfranchisement, these laws were part of that, that plan. I don't know if that's the case or not. I wasn't there. I've I've not studied the history of the 1890 constitution and certainly Mississippi has a very um, checkered past when it comes to uh, race relations. We treated African-Americans very poorly in you know, some parts of our history. And I'm certainly not going to sit here and defend that or even try to. I, I wouldn't want to. But if you're asking me, is the suffrage right being treated differently based on your race in 2022 as it relates to suffrage bills that we consider in the legislature? Absolutely not. I don't even know, you know, uh, the race of the person. I'm sure I could probably try to find out by asking Department of Corrections to print me a social history, you know, of the person's age and, uh, you know, racial background and all of that. If I wanted to, I've never done that. I don't intend to start, but I mean, it's not obvious to me just by looking at a bill what racial background someone is is a part of. I asked him about this rule more broadly. If someone does their time, they're out of prison, off parole, years have passed, 
Why shouldn't they be allowed to vote? Like, what's the reasoning behind that? Well, I think um, not necessarily what I would think, but we... Oh, but I'm curious about what you think. I mean, I think at some point, personal responsibility has to come into it. And you have to realize if I'm going to break the social contract and commit a violent crime, or, or most of these are violent crimes that lead to um, disenfranchising um, your right to vote, you know, there are prices to pay for that. There hasn't been a groundswell of public support to change this particular aspect of our state constitution. Um, not to say that there won't be uh, in the future, but certainly there hasn't been as of 2022. Of course, the thing about public support is that the people directly affected by this provision in the 1890 Constitution, they can't vote. This year, just five people got their right to vote back, which is pretty typical. This year, it's four women and one man. I don't know much about them because I couldn't reach them, just what's on their suffrage bills. Two were convicted of forgery, two of embezzlement, and one burglary. Most of them finished their sentences before Gerald did. Some of them hadn't been able to vote for decades. There's a lawsuit in the federal courts trying to argue that this whole process for getting the right to vote back is arbitrary and therefore unconstitutional, as in the US Constitution. But it's in the early stages, and any ruling could take years. Nishombi, the woman who helps get a lot of these bills introduced, told me she's basically stuck, trying to get as many of them through the House and Senate as she can, one by one using the very process she doesn't think should exist in the first place. Gerald told me for sure he was going to try again. He still has the copy of his bill that didn't pass. It's in my bedroom. I see it every day. Right now it's attached to my mirror. But uh, at some point I am going to more than likely put it in a frame and keep it in my room. Why'd you put it on your mirror? I want to see it so I can uh, see the progress. See the progress. It passed the yeah. House. And to me, that's an accomplishment. That means that I'm still halfway there. A few months later, we talked again. And he told me he'd been arrested for cocaine possession. He didn't have to tell me about it, but he did. Just volunteered it. He said he was driving a friend and they got pulled over. Gerald says his friend had the cocaine. The police report says both of them did. In any case, Gerald was angry at himself for having gotten into that situation. Drug possession is not a crime that's on the list of things that will cost you your right to vote. It wasn't in the 1890 Constitution. But based on what I learned from Senator Fillingain, Gerald's arrest might be enough reason to kill his bill. If the point of putting this in the Constitution was to make it a long journey for people like Gerald. It's working. Johnny Kaufman is a senior producer at Campside Media. Coming up, a truck that's speeding down a California highway with 100,000 passengers inside. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio when our program continues. This American Life from Ira Glass. Today's program, the longest distance between two points. Stories of people who have to take the long and sometimes absurd way to arrive somewhere that should be so straightforward to get to. We have arrived at Act 2 of our show, Act 2, Ill Communication. In this act, we turn to a story of somebody who starts at home 
and then ends up at home with a long, time-consuming journey in the middle. This whole thing happens in China. I guess you've probably heard just how different and fantastically aggressive China's response to COVID has been. From the start, they shut down entire cities, and it got results. Best estimates are that China has had fewer than 20,000 people dead from COVID versus, as you know, a million here. And when Omicron arrived, China treated it with the same severity as the earlier variants, even though 90% of the population is now vaccinated. They locked down all of Shanghai in April. And lockdown in this case means really locked down. Over 25 million people could not leave their apartments or homes. Grocery stores and food delivery were shut down. Lots of people couldn't get food or medicine. It was pretty awful. This lasted for two months. And we still haven't gotten much of a glimpse of what it was like to live through that. So I was excited to talk to Yang Yi about this thing that happened to him and his boyfriend during that period. Yang is a podcast producer in China, lives in Shanghai. And one day early in the lockdown, he did his daily required self-test, as usual. But that morning, I saw two lines. Two lines? Yeah. You had COVID? Yeah. I think, wow, that's bad. And I tell my boyfriend, Johnny, and he tests and is positive too. Anybody in China who tests positive is required to report it to the government, which in Johnny and Yi's case means calling one of their neighbors, a very kind retiree who is the person in their apartment building designated to deal with government on all matters, getting new elevators installed, dealing with a block sewer, whatever. So the caller. And then they figure within a couple hours, the government's going to send somebody to take them to a quarantine center that's part of China's zero-tolerance policy. Unhealthy people are separated from the rest of the population. And then, the next very urgent order of business, they really don't have much time for this, is figuring out where to send their dog while they're in quarantine. She's just a puppy, a five-month-old schnauzer. They had seen um, this video online that was being passed around of a corgi being killed, supposedly because its owner had COVID and had been sent to a quarantine center. So there's no way for a dog to go with them, and so... I just, I just cried. <laughs> I just, I just, I don't know how to say it. just crash. Because I, I don't know what's next. Yeah. It's such unpredictable. And the dark scenes is a very clear scene we have to solve in several hours. It's actually harder than you might think because the whole city is closed up. Johnny calls lots of places before he finally finds an animal hospital that can take their schnauzer. But then they have to find somebody who's authorized to drive a car in Shanghai with all the streets shut down. So a friend knows some professional freight drivers, and they help with that. And then they have to find somebody who's allowed to walk from their apartment building to the car to hand the dog to the driver. It takes a government official to arrange that. Finally... The dog is delivered into the car. He and Johnny can start packing, figuring somebody's going to come for them any minute to take them to the quarantine center. But things wasn't that simple. The truth is, no one came to us at the first day. Or the second. Or the third. Someone calls from the Shanghai CDC to follow up, but didn't send anybody. Other officials call. More days pass. Finally, on the eighth day, they do their daily self-tests, and they learn... They do not have COVID anymore. And then that night, before dinner, they get the phone call. The phone call, yeah. Informing us that it's time to go. Oh, to the quarantine center. 
yes, in two hours we should go to the curb with our luggage for the bus, and that bus would take us to the Corny Center. Oh no! So do you tell them that's fine? We're cured. We don't need to come. Yes, yes, of course. I, I say okay. Self test is negative today. There's no need for it, and they say, "Oh, you guys have to go." What if you don't go? Who knows? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> really? Yeah. They decide that it's smart to go because now they have this bureaucratic thing that they actually need to fix. China has these QR codes. Everybody has one on their phone. Red if you have COVID. Green if you don't have COVID. Now. Theirs were red, meaning they wouldn't be able to go into any building or store or office or just anywhere when lockdown ended. That's the thing they thought the quarantine center could cure for them. And at that point, my thought is, we want a healthy social identity back, not a healthy body. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Even if your bodies don't have COVID, your QR code has COVID, and and they can take care of that. <laughs> yes. So, so after a week, uh, you finally go to the quarantine center. What's it like? Uh, actually, it is a high school gymnasium. And this is sound I recorded for my own podcast. And this quarantine center is for people with very, you know, minor symptoms or no symptom at all. Most don't even need a doctor, so they just come here and rest and wait to get better. These are doctors telling us all where to go. You go to the first floor. You are first. You are second. You are third. Okay, move forward. Then what happens? My boyfriend and I go inside. They issued us、uh, toiletries. A wash basin, toothpaste, toothbrush, towel, a cup, and two packs of tissues. Two packs of tissues. And a sleeping bag, and we wait for checking. It's like you guys are joining the army or something. <laughs> Some people were sent to stay on the basketball court on the third floor. He and Johnny were pointed to the first floor, where they learned they'd be living. In a swimming pool, there's no water in it. Instead, there were rows of cots, men in the deep end, women and children in the shallow end. Elderly people with mobility problems were around the edges of the pool. Because it was just a high school pool, there's only a tiny bathroom with one toilet in it for the men, and another bathroom with one toilet for the women. But there are close to 200 people here now,、right. so it's crazy. And there's no hot water in the shower. Ian and Johnny figured they'd be there for four or five days. The rumor was you needed two negative PCR tests to get out, and they give the tests every other day. It was late at night when we arrived, so we went straight to bed. So in the Corning Center, the lights do not turn off all night long. The lights don't turn off. And you know, people around you watch TikTok all night long without headphones on. Now it's 11:00 p.m. Okay, so that's you saying it is now 10:40 p.m. on April the 17th. I'm lay on the cot, and 
you can hear what it sounds like around me. Could you sleep? Could Johnny sleep? Well, frankly speaking, I can sleep. <laughs> And、okay. I sleep well. But for Johnny, I think, oh, he's more sensitive during sleeping. Yeah. So that noisy environment is not work for him. It's obvious he becomes more and more tired each day. That's how it really gets to Johnny, though. What kills Johnny about all this? When Johnny realizes that there is only one man's toilet, he just, you know, I don't know, he broke down, he crashed. <laughs> he just feels, you know, it's such disgusting. It is not healthy. He says that to avoid using the bathroom for, I'll just say, number two, Johnny took steps, real steps. Every meal, he just e a t half. <laughs> he just e a t half. <laughs> like the breakfast, they, they were give us the bread, the eggs, and the milk. He just e a t a piece of bread,、yeah. no eggs, no milk, <laughs> something like that. <laughs> And is this typical of the two of you? He would get more freaked out about things and you would be more calm? Well, his childhood, he, he is you know, born and raised in Shanghai. It's a big city.、Mm-hmm. And everything is very clean, very plain. You、oh, know,、right. yeah, everything is fine. He's used to things being That, better. Yeah. Yes, yes. So, but, but for me, it's different because I, I come from a small town. So <laughs> I, I, I have to say, you know, I have to, I have to see. More dirty toilet than this. So for me, I think it was fine. It would be fine because I've I seen worse. You've seen worse? <laughs> yeah, I've seen worse. The daily routine at the quarantine center every other morning at seven, everybody will line up at the edge of the pool for a PCR test. When you finish your test, you get breakfast. Young people usually go back to sleep, he says. 7 a.m. is a little early for them.、But、pretty soon,、uh, their sleep is disturbed by housekeepers who come through spraying disinfectant everywhere, which is really, really loud, he says. He and Johnny will work, do remote meetings with their colleagues. And then, when it's almost time for lunch, a nurse stands at the edge of the swimming pool and gets on a megaphone. And in that noisy, echoey room, people talking on their phones. And suddenly, it gets very quiet because. Everyone knows the nurses are going to read the names of everyone who are allowed to go home. And what's it like? What's the scene like? Well, you know, that scene is very, very funny because the scene is a lot like a reality TV show. You know, those whose names are read, cheer, and someone say, Whoa, I gotta go home. You know, something like that. And those who are not mentioned have disappointment, you know, written all of their faces. After that, Yi says, everybody tries to figure out why did that person get out? How many negative tests do you really need to get out? And, and there is, you know, some, some gossip is here. Oh, that guy, he already left, but I don't know, maybe he's only got one negative and he's leaving.、Oh, and that guy, you know, he got two negatives, but his QR code is still red. So that is the main topics in the coronary center. Everyone will say, oh, How many inactive you get? How many inactive are you get? What's your result? What's your result? And so, how does this feel to you and Johnny? Like, you're in this absurd situation. You don't have COVID, but they're keeping you in quarantine. You can't go home. 
Like, were you angry? Were you frustrated? I think I think we're we're not angry and frustrated because, well, Ara, I have to say we have no choice. Yeah. We have no choice. We have to face the reality. And the quarantine center, he says, wasn't all bad. In fact, a bunch of things were better than the life back home with the city all locked down. I don't have to worry about food anymore. Since the beginning of April, with everything our lockdown, you know, it was hard to find food anywhere. All stores were closed, food delivery was completely shut down, and nobody stored enough food. We are hungry. Really? You were hungry? Yes, I'm hungry. But here, three meals are served here every day. Pork, beef, eggs, vegetables, and unlimited drinks and milk. So that seems really important. Yes, and another benefit of being here, we can move around, get some exercise. We're not allowed to leave our homes. In our tiny apartment, it's only 20 steps at most to walk from you know, one end to the other. Yeah. But there is a standard swimming pool here to walk around. It is 140 meters. And after each meal, you will see many people walk around the edge of the pool. This is another thing. Back at home, he says, at their apartment building, people would only see each other when they went downstairs for the official COVID test. When they did that, everybody was pretty quick about it. Nobody would stay and chat, scared of getting infected. But here, everyone is infected. Well, everybody but them. And they were all stuck together. So people talked and hung out. And you can just watch people, which he likes. Yeah, I hadn't seen so many strangers in weeks. And what impressed me the most was a young couple. <laughs> this is me saying, they seem to be sunbathing. It's like they're laying on the beach. Wait, because why? Explain their setup. Oh, because they, they moved their cot to the side of the pool and for them so... They were like the beach chairs, you know, and each laying there by the pool with a book in their hands. Honestly, like when you describe it this way, it doesn't sound so bad. Yeah, I feel that here in Corning Center, um, no more life is lived. Other people you observed, a middle-aged businessman, big guy, big voice, very pro-government, who would spout off after breakfast every day about politics at length for everyone around him, like his own political talk show. On the cut next to him, a skinny university lecturer who Yi saw try to argue with the businessman one day, which apparently did not go very well. The businessman just kind of drowned him out. And then there was the guy who slept on the cut next to Yi. He was a source of fascination because more than anybody in the quarantine center, he seemed the most desperate to get out, the most upset each day when he was not on the list to go home. Yi didn't know his first name. Uh, I usually call him Wang. Clean card, 26 worked as an English teacher in a kindergarten. Mm-hmm. And before I came to the Corning Center, he's already here for one week. Wow. And the day after I arrived, he had already gotten two negative test results, but they didn't get let him leave. That's Wang's voice, and he's saying he was getting desperate. One of the ways that uh, Wang deals with his anxiety over this he never changes his clothes. 
He says that he's in the same red shirt and white socks every single day, even though he has a big suitcase by his cot. But he never opened that suitcase. And I ask him why. He tells me he just want to go home. He just want to go home when the nurse read his name and leave immediately and pack the suitcase. Maybe it will spend five or eight or ten minutes. He don't want to waste of time. So he think, okay, maybe I don't open that suitcase. Some nights, Wang stays up all night, worried that he's going to sleep through the PCR test at 7 a.m. Here's Wang's voice, and he's saying, I can't sleep all night. I was waiting. My mind was thinking all the time, go home, go home, go home. I was not even in the mood to watch TikTok anymore. Finally, one morning, they read Wang's name. He says he was out of there in three minutes flat, threw his sleeping bag and toiletries into the garbage, pulled his unopened suitcase out of there before Yi could get his phone number or say goodbye. Johnny and Yi got out the next day. They got their dog back. QR codes were fixed. They started, you know, in their apartment, went on a six-day journey that was completely pointless and delivered them back at the end of the road to the exact spot they'd started. No better and no worse. Though he says he's glad it happened. I have to say it's, it's feel like an adventure. It's just like an adventure. Yeah. We got food. We could talk to the strangers. And that is the only chance during those weeks we could go outside apartment, we could go on the street. When they were dropped off afterwards, it was at a crossroads near the place. And they walked through the empty streets to get home. And he liked that. No cars, no people, just cats, he says. Just strolling in the middle of the street like they own the place. When would you ever see that? Or any of it? If you had a choice, you definitely would choose the experience they had. Johnny, however, no way. Act three, the road less traveled. So ladies and gentlemen, perhaps you remember the critique offered by a 10-year-old at the beginning of today's program about the way we spell the name of a certain fish. S-A-L-M-O-N. It would be pronounced salmon, but it's salmon. Like, why? Fair point. This last story is about salmon doing something about as logical as that spelling, taking a ridiculous route to get where they need to go. And by that I mean a ridiculous route that is different from the normal kind of ridiculous route they usually take. Jamie Lowe went to California to see it for herself. I have an above-average attachment to salmon, an obsession that began in college when I took a class with salmon guru Peter Moyle. He's famous in salmon circles, trust me. I think I was attracted to their epic migration and the macabre nature of their lives. They're born, wiggle around in a cold stream, make their way to the ocean, then instinctually against all odds, return to the place of their birth, hurling their bodies over waterfalls, flesh-rotting, dodging bear claws, 
simultaneously decaying as they're pushing towards their exact nook in their exact birth stream to lay eggs and let the cycle begin again. It's like they're dying to live. I mean, there's this whole industry of nature documentaries centered on dramatizing the species and their odyssey. Films which feature the sound of raging water in the background while a serious narrator describes their majesty. It's a game of persistence and luck. And although they fail time after time, their desire to push on is so strong they never give up. It's a staple of nature porn. But the world has changed. The climate has changed. There's been increasingly hot temperatures, fires, drought, pollution. And many of the rivers salmon use for their migration have run dry or have been blocked by dams. That's why today in California, many salmon follow a radically different course. They make their way to the ocean not through rivers, but inside a fleet of tanker trucks with human drivers at the wheel. When I first heard about trucking salmon, it seemed so dystopic, a cold mechanical process. The idea of salmon stuck in traffic just made me feel sad, like nature had been hijacked. But I was also kind of curious. I really wanted to see this Rube Goldberg tin cans and rubber bands environmental hack in person. So I decided to follow five silver trucks transporting about half a million adolescent salmon on a 120-mile drive to the San Francisco Bay, a migration that no longer starts with the sound of babbling water. It's got a different sound. Late one Tuesday afternoon, I found myself at the Mokalumne River Fish Hatchery, standing in front of a gas-powered machine that looked like it would be more at home on a construction site. The hatchery is about an hour northeast of Modesto in the Central Valley. It's rural and isolated, and so hot the sun immediately burns, even in May. Mokalumne sits next to a river that was once known for thriving salmon and trout runs, but was dammed in the 60s. To offset the lost wild populations, the state built a hatchery and a parking lot close to the old stream bed. I should say, hatcheries are controversial. The fish raised in them are not as prepared to survive in nature, and when they're released, they breed with native salmon, compromising the gene pool. There are people who think we shouldn't have hatcheries at all, but California's had them for decades at this point, a really long time. Mokalumni is not a massive operation. Just a few bungalows and 20 concrete trenches packed with adolescent fish. When I pull up, I meet the guy responsible for getting the salmon to the ocean. Bill Smith, the hatchery manager, greets me, then walks me over to this machine that's now so critical to salmon migration. And we try to talk over its roar. What is this? This is a fish crowder. A fish crowder? Yeah. This is what we use to crowd the fish down. Oh, I see them. The old salmon? Yeah. yeah. Bill's a big, bearded, burly guy, and his suspenders are not just for show. They hold up jeans, which are tucked into waterproof boots. He's introverted, seems a little gruff, but there's a tenderness in the way he talks about the fish. In fact, he tells me, when these fish were just born, babies the size of fingernails, wriggling in the water. He would sometimes sleep at the hatchery overnight. 
He wanted to make sure their water was the right temperature, that the electricity stayed on. He wanted to make sure they were okay. Do you feel emotional attachment to the fish after, because you, like, basically... I don't know if you call it that, but yeah, definitely an attachment. Pretty amazing animal. Yeah. It's comforting to know someone who cares is at the heart of this operation. Bill grew up in the area, a fisherman. His life revolves around raising these animals for harvest. But he rarely buys salmon in the store, says he can't afford it. He only eats what he catches. He mounted the moving platform of the crowder and started in on his job. The crowder has a metal grate that dips below the water. It pushes the fish, each the size of a hot dog, to one end of the raceway. Then they're sucked up into a tube that's connected to the top of a truck. The tube was translucent, and I could see all these salmon whooshing by, like documents being transported in a nomadic tube. I wondered how they felt, if they felt. What did they think of this sudden rush of movement, the dramatic shift in their environment? One minute shining in the sun, the next dropped in a big dark tanker. There was no way to really know. After Bill filled each truck with brackish water and fish and bags of ice to maintain the temperature, we pulled out of the hatchery. Goodbye, fishies. We're on the road, me and 500,000 fish, and it's weird. Bill's driving ahead in a pickup. I follow behind the caravan. The five trucks look like any other fuel tankers you would see on the highway. They blend in seamlessly. You'd never know how many lives were speeding by in the lane next to you. What's amazing is that even though the fish are traveling by truck, they'll still be able to trace their way back to their birthplace, the hatchery. The fish are imprinted with hatchery water, Bill told me. So if they survive long enough at sea to reach spawning age, they can use their sense of smell to return to him, swimming up rivers till they're at the stream bed by the hatchery. It takes two and a half hours till the trucks finally pull into their destination, Fort Baker. Nothing can happen until the dead of night because if the salmon are released when it's light out, Seagulls, pelicans, and cormorants will circle, dive, and swallow as many of the 500,000 fish as they can. In front of us, the Golden Gate Bridge frames the San Francisco Bay, which glimmers against the skyline. They can't get very close to the water because the pier is a historic landmark. So Bill sets up a chute, which extends about 100 feet. It connects a truck to the edge of the pier, then there's a 20-foot drop from the pier to the bay. Darkness finally closes in, and Bill signals that it's time. As oblivious teenagers make out at the end of the pier, a slow trickle of water drips down into the bay. Then a steady stream flows with a few of the small fish. Then a cascade, a rush, all at once, crowded and alive. The salmon are falling in a flurry to the bay below, crashing against the water, then making small waves of their own. It's chaotic and beautiful, but everything about this is fucked up. 
It feels crude and kind of rude to the animals. I feel like we don't even deserve salmon if this is the world we've made. But at the same time, and I hate that I'm saying this, it's not so bad. I love salmon and I want them to survive. And if we're gonna have salmon in California, this might be the only way. Bill repeats the process with each truck four more times. A few fish flop on the pier, and he picks them up tenderly and throws them in the water with the others. He's gotten them as far as he can. Jamie Lowe. Her most recent book is called Breathing Fire, Female Inmate Firefighters on the Front Lines of California's Wildfires. Somewhere in my life, I realized I had to make a choice. So I decided to make this choice. Mm-hmm. Listen, y'all. I'll take the long road. Our program is produced today by Chris Benderib and Nadia Raymond. People who helped put together today's program include Bim Adewunmi, Sean Cole, Michael Kamate, Aviva de Kornfeld, Hannah Shafi, Walt, Seth Lynn, Michelle Navarro, Stone Nelson, Catherine Raimondo, Elise Spiegel, Laura Storchewski, Chris Rosratala, Marisa Robertson, Texter, Matt Tierney, and Diane Wu. Our managing editors, Sarah Abdurabin. Our senior editors, David Kestenbaum. Our executive editor is Emmanuel Berry. Special thanks today to Paloma Wu and Blake Feldman at the Mississippi Center for Justice, Arthur Bass, Carson Jeffries, Autumn Bernstein, Steve Goff, Alicia Netterville, Patricia Trials, Jay Jackson, Omar Travis, Sam Levine, Pippa Holloway, Dorothy Overstreet Pratt, Carrie Cleland, Rebecca Vitale Decola, America Billy, and Rebecca Camther. Our website, thisamericanlife.org, where you can stream our archive of over 750 episodes for absolutely free. Also, there's videos, there's lists of favorite shows, there's tons of other stuff there too. Seriously, it's good. Again, thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the public radio exchange. Thanks as always to our program's co-founder, Mr. Tori Malatia. You know, he is still bitter, bitter, so bitter over Julie Andrews leaving him long ago to star in the movie Mary Poppins. He remembers telling her. Have fun being able to spell supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. I'm Eric Glass. Back next week with more stories of This American Life. Oh, oh, oh.